addressed to all the believers. So why is it that this term Christian came to be used? What happened at Antioch? Let's pray together and we'll look at Acts chapter 11 and we'll find out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come now to your word, that you would quieten our minds to listen to your voice. Holy Spirit, you would, would you move inside each one of us so that uh, we can see the Lord Jesus? Uh, would you fix our eyes on him? Amen. Well, it must have been very frightening. It must have been very frightening. It must have been devastating for the church when Stephen was killed. If you look at verse 19, the start of our reading, it says, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Stephen was their friend. They knew Stephen. He wasn't just someone who was very far away. Imagine if Stephen was here. Stephen was killed. Stephen was a follower of Jesus. He was stoned to death by the Jews because he told the Jews that Jesus is God's righteous one whom they betrayed and murdered. The pressure has been building in Jerusalem. The Jews wanted Jesus dead and forgotten, so they saw to it that the Romans crucified him. But of course, Jesus rose from the dead and the disciples saw that and they continued to spread the gospel. Jesus is God, Jesus is alive. The Messiah has come. They would not stop telling people the pressure is building and building and building. And it all comes to a head in Acts chapter 7. Would you flick back a few pages? I want us to see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. 54, sorry. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. When they heard them preaching the gospel, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the tops of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. I wanted us to look at that because I wanted us to see what Stephen saw. He sees the glory of God. He sees it with his eyes. He's, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen knows who his Savior is. He has confidence and peace in his love. So he looks up. He looks up. And he sees Jesus who stands up. Now that is really significant. Jesus stood up because Jesus is seated in heaven because his work on the cross, his saving work on the cross is finished, but Jesus stood up. Who did he stand up for? He stood up for Stephen. He, stood up, he stands up to raise up his people to eternal life. Stephen had such peace. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, but also such courage. 
to proclaim Jesus with boldness, which led him all the way to being killed. He, because he believed that Jesus is alive and Jesus is mighty to save. It's not easy, is it, when, when we suffer as Christians? I mean, I suppose we have no idea in the Western world, but when we do, when we do suffer for Christians, we can be encouraged that God is not caught unaware. When life is hard, if you're mocked or rejected for your faith, do what Jesus, do, do what Stephen did, sorry. Do what Stephen did and look up. Look up to Jesus. You might not actually see him until he brings you to heaven or Jesus returns, but at all times, whether you see Jesus or not, he sees you. Stephen looked up. So look up, friends. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look up. The persecution of Stephen is just the start. It spreads very rapidly against the other disciples. So they become scattered. But they're not lost. When you see the word scattered, you can go back to Acts chapter 11, and you see in verse 19, those who had been scattered, that doesn't mean, oh no, run for it, what are we going to do? They're not lost, they're scattered. They are exactly where Jesus wants them to be. The timing of this might not have been the disciples' plan, but it is Jesus' plan. Um, I'm going to read Acts chapter 1 for you. After Jesus died and, and rose again, Jesus said to his disciples, this is his plan. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when we read what's happening in Acts chapter 11, it might look like a disaster, but it is all going according to plan. But do you see how it happened? It happened through persecution that they were scattered. What was meant for evil and destruction, the destruction of Jesus' church, that was the goal, was actually what God worked through to accomplish the growing of the kingdom. It's beautifully ironic. In the early chapters of the book of Acts up until chapter 11, until now, the, dis the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, have mostly stayed local. You know, they have stayed fairly close to where it all started, in and around Jerusalem, just as Jesus told them to. And so the gospel is mostly being preached to the Jews. And that's good. You know, they need to hear it too. After all, God chose Israel to receive his Messiah and then to bless the nations by telling others about him. But of course, they didn't do that. They rejected and killed the Messiah. But still, it makes sense to... If, if, you're, if you're a Jew and you've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, it makes sense that you tell the people where you live. You stay local. And they know the culture of Jerusalem. They live there. So it makes sense. But that's why in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, because they know the culture, because they live there, that's why when persecution comes and the disciples travel as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, that's why at first they only spread the word to the Jews. Because it's their culture. They know these people. But then there is a turning point in the history of God's church. It's in verse 20. Have a look at it with me. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now that may not seem it to us, but that is remarkable. It wasn't easy for the first disciples. They have spent their lives with one identity. If you ask them, who are they? They would say they're Jews. And the Jews are God's chosen people. We're not Gentiles. To tell the Gentiles about Yahweh, 
would have for them seemed ridiculous. But for these scattered disciples, they are facing a culture change in the church. It was still very Jewish at this point. But now there's going, but now there's going to be Gentiles in the church. And for them, that would have been a little bit, maybe very, uncomfortable and unfamiliar. Now, I know what that feels like. I wonder if you know what that feels like. Especially those of us who have been raised in a church, like I was, um, who've been raised in a Christian family. I and mean, what a blessing it is to be raised in a church and raised in a Christian family. But when that's the case, it can sometimes be challenging to even consider engaging with those who weren't. Maybe not for all of us, but it was for me. And you know why it's challenging? Because they have a different culture. They weren't raised in the same culture I was, just like the Jews, when they're going talking to Gentiles. They speak differently, they have different values, and there's a fear sometimes. It starts in here. There's a fear sometimes. What will they say to me if I start talking about Jesus? What if they ask a question and I don't know what to say? What if they want to come to church? I mean, I like it as it is. What if they come here and they actually become believers? And that might change the culture of the church. And it will. That's a little scary. Or at least I find, I find it a little scary. Maybe you do too. For many years, I felt that fear. And in some cases probably unintentionally, that fear was met with a bit, of, a bit of shame. People say, oh, shame on you for not wanting to go and tell other people. Um, or I didn't say shame, but it just, it was, that pressure was put there. And I, and I really struggled with that. It, did, it really didn't help to feel, I felt so guilty. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. But can I tell you what I think is going to help? Can I tell you what I finally, what, what, what scripture tells us to do? Right? When, if you feel that fear, Here's what you do. Look up. Do what Stephen did. Look up and keep looking because Jesus sees you. The church is about him. It's not ours. It's his church. It's not some community that you and I got into by birthright or because we just happen to live in the area. If you do live in the area and you were born into, the, into a church, that's a great blessing. But the church is Jesus' culture. We're not here because it's our denomination. This is Jesus's church. And I promise you that when you keep looking at Jesus, if you keep doing that, then the fear will disappear. The fear will disappear and it will be replaced by something else. It will be replaced by a desire to see other people come to know the love of Jesus because you know the love of Jesus so much that you can't keep it to yourself. What Jesus is doing, we're seeing it happen in Acts chapter 11, is he's creating a new humanity. A new category. This isn't Jews and Gentiles anymore. This is disciples of the Lord Jesus. This is a family made up of former Jews and former Gentiles who, had, who now have this new identity as Jesus' people. Jesus' adopted people. Jesus' forgiven people. People who are declared righteous. And this is what Jesus wants. Look at verse uh, 21 of Acts 11. Verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A great number. Can you imagine what we're seeing here in Antioch is a fruitful international church. How did that happen? Well, it's in verse 21. Do you see how it happened? The Lord's hand was with them. 
when I was a um, teenager, our family went on holiday to uh, a water park. You ever been to such a place? They're a bit mad, but we went to this huge water park, and it had a big water slide on it, you know, very high up. And, you know, well, maybe you don't, but I didn't know, but you know how it goes. Here's what you do, right, if you ever go there. You get this big inflatable rubber ring. It's bigger than you are, right? And you hold it behind your back, and you hold on with the handles like this, and then you kind of lie in this bit of water, and you're sort of rocking back and forth like some turtle that's been thrown on his back, and you're just sitting there, and you're not really moving. You're just bobbing back and forth, back and forth. And the first time I did this, I thought I've done it wrong, because I'm not moving. I'm just sitting here. Holding. Until, of course, the lifeguard, he pushes my ring forward, and I surge forward, and all the gravity and all the water hooshes you down this massive big water slide really fast, and it feels great. Look at verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that in your head. As a church, God's hand is pushing them forward. That's what he's doing. The reason the disciples see a great number of people come to believe and turn to the Lord is because the Lord's hand is with them. No hand of the Lord with them, nothing's going to happen. They're just going to sit there, bobbing back, bobbing back and forth. But God is the wind at their backs. He's blessing them. His hand is surging them forward at great speed. How exciting. Why? Why is his hand with them? Well, because in verse 19, have a look. They are spreading the word. And in verse 21, they are telling the good news about the Lord Jesus. You do that, the Lord's hand will be with you. This is what happens when God scatters It's like seed. It's the parable of the sower. Believers who have the word of God, they bear fruit. What does the fruit look like? In the Christians, it looks like obedience. Jesus tells them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what they're doing. And when they do that, more fruit comes. People come to faith because they're teaching people about Jesus. They're opening the Bible and teaching people about Jesus. We don't even know the names of the believers who went to Antioch. We don't know their names. They just were scattered. But we do know that they had a zeal for Jesus. They loved him. They had seen him. They knew him. So word of what is happening in Antioch gets back to the boys in Jerusalem. And they send Barnabas to evaluate us. It's fair enough, just to make sure that this is a legitimate, actual Jesus movement. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And Barnabas is so glad to see that it is. He had a great time when he arrived in Antioch. He gets to see the grace of God at work. So he thinks to himself, what is next for this young church? What's next for any church? Two things, right? Two things. Encouragement and discipleship. Verse 23, have a look at it with me. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. This is a man who loves Jesus and it overflows out of him. He's an encourager. We all need someone like this. In verse 24, we're told he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. His very presence, his witness in Antioch, that that increases people coming to the faith. He helps it along. He encourages the new believers. He says, keep going. 
Keep looking to Jesus. Be faithful. Be true to him. And he could say that because he lived it. Barnabas isn't even his real name. In um, Acts chapter 4, he, appear, he first appears on the scene in Acts chapter 4. His name is Joseph. He's a Levite. He's from Cyprus. Um, the apostles then actually rename him. They give him the name of called Barnabas because he is such an encouragement. He has this field and he owns it and he sells it and he gives it to the church in order to spread the gospel. Barnabas is so confident in God's grace for him that he sells that field. He doesn't have to. And he doesn't have to give all the money from the field to the church, but he, he wants to, he can do, because he really cares about mission. Why does he care so much about seeing the gospel spread? Because he's from Cyprus. He knows the gospel is not there and he wants to get it there. He, he's invested, he knows these people. Now he's come to Antioch to encourage and be part of the encouragement. And it's not just an emotional thing. It's not just, yeah, keep going, isn't it grace? He is recognizing that the church in Antioch, what it needs is discipleship, and he encourages them to do that. Now, Barnabas could have just done the job himself, you know, I'll encourage them and I'll disciple them. But he decides, no, I love his humility. Barnabas knows a great Bible teacher, and so he heads off to Tarsus to find Saul and bring him back to Antioch. Saul. Hold on a second. Was anybody paying attention when we read that part from Acts chapter 7 about Saul? Um, has, has Barnabas lost his mind? Um, no, of course not. Uh, very famously, of course, Saul, the Jewish zealot who tried to wipe out this, what he saw, what he saw as a false teaching movement that kept telling people that Jesus was the Messiah. He tried to wipe them out. He himself, of course, encountered Jesus. He met Jesus as he was heading towards Damascus. And now, in this beautiful picture of how God gives everybody who comes to him grace and a whole new identity, Saul is now going to go and teach the scriptures to a church that was started by his persecution. Did you catch that? But because Saul was persecuting the believers in Jerusalem, they ended up in Antioch, and now he's going to go, one of the guys who was throwing the stones, he's going to go and teach them. And that's how much Jesus has changed his life and given him a whole new identity and a gift of teaching. And so Saul is going to go and do that. How do Barnabas and Paul disciple this church? Well, verse 26 for a whole year, they met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And that's what discipleship is. It's not just an initial decision to believe in Jesus and turn, excuse me, and turn to follow him, but to keep following him, to grow as his disciple, to live for Jesus in a culture that we find ourselves. We need help to do that, to live for Jesus in this ever-changing culture. They needed it then, and boy, do we need it now. Culture is changing around us very rapidly because following Jesus will mean living counterculturally. And discipleship will help us do that and tell us why we do that. But for that to happen, we need to be taught from God's Word regularly because God's Word is all about Jesus. It will keep fixing our eyes on Him. And we get to know Jesus as we are taught the Bible. And what would happen if we don't? if we didn't do that? Well, I don't think Jesus will mean very much to you. It leaves you with a bunch of people. Now, the church is very precious to Jesus, but Jesus told his followers to go and make disciples. 
He didn't go, say, go and make some people who have a sort of a, a ticket to the best hotel in heaven. Like they have, what, the best death, life insurance in the whole wide world. It's not just that, oh, a long, long time ago, Jesus did something, which means that a long, long time in the future, when I die, I get to go to heaven. Is that how it works? That is, I suppose, one way of putting it. But that's missing out on the bit in between. That's missing out on being a disciple. And if you do miss out on that, you are missing out on a heart-changing journey. Because you know what happens in between coming to believe in Jesus and getting to see him in heaven? Is the Holy Spirit changes you. And as you listen to God's voice in his word, you grow to love Jesus more and more so that you actually long to see him and you want to be with him. That that, by the time you get there, God willing, is the thing you want most. Is to see and and others to be there with him too. I mean, let's look. I want to show you the impact this had in Antioch. Uh, If you're in Acts 11, would you flip over the page to Acts 13? I'm just going to show you a few verses. I I want to see, I want to show you what happened after Barnabas and Saul's ministry there. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They have become an incredibly diverse church. Our world is talking about diversity a lot these days, but real diversity is here. Look at this. We've met Barnabas and Saul already, but we have Simeon and Lucius. They're from Africa. Menean, who is related to a Roman ruler. This is a church made up of people from many different nations. And whatever they were before, whatever their identity was before, who they are now is they're disciples of Jesus. They worship Jesus, and they're a missional church. Did you see that? That's what the church should be, a missional church. They send Barnabas and Saul. They send them away. They don't keep them for themselves because they want, they know it. They, they've lived this. They want others to hear about Jesus because they heard about it. So they, can, they, they commission them. They commission Barnabas and Saul and off they go, continuing to spread the gospel. Let me uh, leave you with a few challenges, a few challenges and a few encouragements. Antioch is a model of a church for us to follow. Why? Well, go back to Acts 11, verse 23. Acts 11, 23. When Barnabas arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. Imagine getting to see that. That's what I want to see. That's what Jesus wants to see. What did he see when he was there? He saw all the believers in that church were sharing the gospel of Jesus with everyone. He saw a church embracing new believers, wherever they come from, whatever they were, by prioritizing discipleship. I mean, they spent a whole year being taught. And they want to see, what else did he see? He saw, they, they wanted to see more churches started, more disciples made. So they send Saul and Barnabas. They scatter them. That's how they started. They want to continue to obey Jesus' command to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So let me finish as I began by asking you if you've ever given much thought to how we came to be called Christians. In Acts eleven twenty six, we were told the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. People looked at them, listened to them, and they said, they're not Gentiles. 
They're not Jews. They're, they're Christians. They're followers of Jesus. So let me challenge us as a church and as us as individuals. If that hadn't happened and we were still in, in, in search of a name for ourselves and people from the outside came here and they looked at what we did, they listened to what we talk about, would they name us after Jesus? As a challenge, I find that challenging myself and a challenge for us as a church. Would they call us Christians because it's so obvious that we're devoted to Jesus? You know, when I was younger, I would sometimes um, ask my brother to get me something. You know, I'd be sitting on the couch or something and just say, hey, Jonathan, would you uh, get me this? And he would look at me and he would say, please. And, I, and me being slightly cheeky would say, Jonathan, please is implied. You don't need to say it every single time. Guys, Jesus is not implied. We, we say him, we talk about him, we worship him, we keep doing that every single time. Jesus is who we emphasize Every day, it's about Jesus. Every day, the mission is Jesus. Every day, I'm, pray I'm praying, Jesus, I want to know you better, and I want to bring you to the people that you have put in my life. Even in situations that seem very distant from coming to church, that person next to you in work, that person you're meeting for a coffee, they need Jesus. They may not say that, but they do, and you know that they do. And remember, this is not something to make you feel guilty and pressure, because that doesn't work. Remember what we do instead? We look up. We look at Jesus. And by doing that, and you see that he sees you and he loves you, it will overflow out of you. As I was praying this week, I remembered the first time I was asked if I was a Christian. I was 19 and I was in that room. And I had, as I told you, I had been raised coming to this church. I had started helping out in youth group. I had been hearing the gospel of Jesus from Karen, for those of you who were, who were here when Karen was here. She had been teaching us the Bible. And someone asked me, was I a Christian? And for the first time, I actually I thought about it and I said, yes, I am. I am. I, I belong to Jesus. I am a Christian. So what about you? I want to leave you with uh, some verses from John chapter 17. This is Jesus' heart. This is his heart for his people. Jesus said to his father, and he's talking about his people, he says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Let's pray. Father, please help us to look up and see the Lord Jesus. Father, as we, as we read your words, may we just constantly see that it is all about Jesus. Father, help us to emphasize Jesus. Take away the fear, take away the guilt. That's not from you. Help us to look at Jesus so that he overflows in us, that we realize how loved we are by him, that we can't but tell other people all about the one who knows everything we've ever done, but loves us and died for us and reigns in heaven. Amen.